Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. And welcome to Crime and Spirits, your new favorite true crime and cocktail podcast. I'm your host, Bree. And I'm your other host, Suze. We're best friends who are obsessed with true crime, and we love a good-themed cocktail. So, we took our two favorite things and turned them into a podcast. Every Sunday, we release a new episode covering a different case or topic of interest. I'm the resident bartender here at Crime and Spirits, so every time we get together, I mix up a drink that ties into the episode in some way, shape, or form, and then I teach you how to make one for yourself. That way, you can sip right along with us. We like to keep things conversational around here, so expect some tangents on occasion, as well as some cursing here and there. Think of us as a cross between Dateline and Girls' Night. So, come hang out with us every week while we learn a little something new together. We love to chat with you about whatever, really, but mostly true crime. You better buckle up, Buttercup. And sip tight. Let's get on with the show. Woo! Hey everyone, welcome to Crime and Spirits. We are your hosts. My name is Bree. And I'm Suze. Thank you for joining us today. We are super happy you're here. We're Yay. super happy to be here. Uh, I hope everybody who celebrates had a good Thanksgiving. That was this past week. Mm-hmm. Suze and I, as you guys know, work in the service industry, so it's been... It has been a week. It's been a week. Let us tell you. <laughs> we don't... I don't want to tell them. <laughs> we're not going to talk about it. We're just going to have some drinks. Part of the reason why we're just so excited to mix up a drink, kick back, have a chat with our favorite humans. Absolutely. This is my favorite day of the week. It's much needed. Absolutely. Black Friday seems to be making a resurgence. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm happy for all you shoppers that got your deals, but wowie. Everybody yeah. <laughs> was hungry and thirsty yesterday. I'm glad that I don't work on that side of town. Mm-hmm. I, I got to avoid all of that. Much regret and sadness on my part. That's <laughs> yeah, fine. But luckily, we're here to talk about some crazy shenanigans. Yes. So... This is going to be part two of our deep dive into the outrageous phenomenon known as the Satanic Panic. These episodes that we're doing here are navigating the murky waters of a moral panic that saw allegations of secret cults, ritualistic abuse, and Satanic worship spreading like wildfire. The question is, were these claims grounded in truth or were they the result of mass hysteria and moral fervor? In the last episode, we really kind of just focused on setting the scene. The 1980s was a time where fears of the unknown collided with the power of suggestion like, whoa. Whoa. And looking back, it seems kind of crazy that this is even a thing in the first place. But what's even crazier is that this chunk of time drastically changed the lives of so many. People were left to sit in jail due to baseless allegations. Lawmakers were scrambling to reallocate funding for like... Things like anti-Satanist groups. <laughs> Who knew we needed that? New laws left, right, and sideways. Mm-hmm. For something that essentially boils down to a modern-day witch hunt, the Satanic Panic is a chapter of history that sent shockwaves fueled by fear, misinformation, and a dose of the supernatural throughout society. So last week we discussed how it happened. This week, we're exploring some of the legal cases and trials that arose as a result of those extravagant claims. Which will be laughable in some instances. I mean, I hate to, we always, we never want to make jokes about the stuff that we're talking about. But this is just 
so far out of left field that it seems made up very much so <laughs> you know very much so <laughs> so we've got the same trigger warning for you as last week during this decade and a half of chaos and hysteria allegations of things like child abuse satanic ritual abuse and murder were thrown around all willy-nilly like nonetheless these topics can be tough to talk about or even listen to regardless of whether any convictions were made we completely understand if this episode is not for you Generally speaking, the topics of discussion on this podcast are incredibly sensitive in nature and ultimately are not suitable for all listeners. If this isn't your jam, we'll catch you on the next one. Yeah, no, no worries. No worries at all. And with all of that being said, we are definitely going to need a fun and or delicious and or both cocktail while we dive into the dark depths of this his time in history. Yeah. So <laughs> like I mentioned last week, I didn't want to take it too seriously, but also like there's a lot of drinks named after like Satan and stuff like that. Also, it's the satanic panic. I know. So that's what I Googled. Satanic panic cocktails. I love is what i googled your google history has got to be i know fucking wild i know i'm sorry fbi and wiretap but i swear it's just for the podcast lol um last week we had death in the afternoon which was super easy it was just absinthe and champagne yeah it was this, good too it was actually surprisingly delicious mm -hmm. um this week's slightly more complicated cocktail is titled satan's whiskers yes <laughs> that is the actual name when she sent me the email with like the drink information in it, I started dying laughing. Cause you're like, this can't be real, right? I love it. <laughs> I don't, qu I've learned by now, we're a year and a half into this. I don't question shit. I just buckle up and get ready for the ride you're gonna take me on. <laughs> so this is an actual cocktail. Like it's in Difford's cocktail guide. Like it is like an official the, cocktail. It is legit. Yes, it is not just a pretend thing I found on the internet. Sometimes, <laughs> Things are, but right. <laughs> um, so the cocktail recipe for this week actually first appeared in print in Harry Craddock's Savoy cocktail book from 1930. Hmm. Many scholars on this topic, if you will, attribute the cocktail to the Embassy Club in Hollywood, however, instead of Harry Craddock, and they actually dated around the Prohibition era. Um, back then, this cocktail was actually called the Embassy Cocktail after the club itself. Oh, right. it does feel a little fancy. It does. It's got a lot of weird ingredients, too, which is how I feel like every Prohibition era cocktail yes. was made. <laughs> Just put it in a cup. They'll drink it no matter Here's what. Here's all the things. Yes. Here's some fruit to hopefully make it better. Right, to hide Maybe it a some bit. juice. Splash the club soda. If you're lucky, right? <laughs> yeah. So the Embassy Club was basically just a fancy speakeasy that was opened by Adolf Eddie Brandstatter, who oh. was a restaurateur who had much grander ideas about himself. So <laughs> he basically used his club to host and impress his personal entourage of starlets, Hollywood starlets and high rollers. I mean, why not? Not mad about Isn't it. Isn't that the point of having your own club? Right? Yes. At any rate, the Satan's Whiskers cocktail is a twist on a Bronx cocktail which is a very similar cocktail that was created around 1900 at the Waldorf Astoria by a bartender oh, wow. named Johnny Salone. Okay. The more you know. I love this. I know. <laughs> so it's got a rich history. Yeah. And it is a classic cocktail. The OG recipe calls for equal parts of gin, dry vermouth, sweet vermouth, and orange juice with a dash of Angostura bitters and a dash of either Grand Marnier or orange curacao. Oh. 
fun story. Those two versions of the cocktail actually have different names. Since we're talking about whiskers here, <laughs> the straight version, which we're making today, uses the Grand Marnier. Oh. The curled version of the Satan's whiskers substitutes the Grand Marnier with that orange curacao. Okay. I have never seen anything other than blue curacao, so I didn't know that was a thing. It's basically but like triple sec. What? I was just going to ask mm-hmm. that. Yeah. They're all very similar. They're Grand all Marnier, essentially like orange liqueurs, right? Grand Marnier has cognac in it. So mm. that makes it a little it's more hoity toity, in my opinion. Yeah. Okay. The fact okay. that they named them curly and straight <laughs> did have me cackling over my computer. I don't fully understand why, but I'm not going to question Back then, it. Things were different. Things were real wild. Um, According to a man named Ted Hay, who did a lot of research on stuff like this for his book, Vintage Spirits and Forgotten Cocktails, the majority of experts prefer the straight version. So Hmm. that's what we're doing today. I mean, that makes sense. Grand Marnier over Curacao. Why not? Right. No offense. (laughs) But so where last drinks last week's drink was easy. This one's just a bit more complicated. So you're going to start with gin. We are using our local altered states black bear gin. Mm. We're also using sweet and dry vermouth. You'll also need orange juice. You use them all in equal parts. You'll need that bitters, that Angostura bitters and the Grand Marnier. If you can find and want to use the orange curacao and you want to try the Satan's Whiskers cocktail curly, (laughs) feel free. (laughs) Um, And then you'll just need an orange peel for garnish. Not necessary, but just fun. You know, elevate your cocktail and all that. So we are using a coupe glass this week. Uh, We're just going to pop it in the freezer while we work because that's how we get them nice and chilly to mix up the drink itself. Just take a shaker filled with ice and add half an ounce each of the gin, sweet vermouth, dry vermouth, and the orange juice. We did fresh squeeze our orange juice because we felt fancy today. But if you have the bottled stuff, just use that. It's all the same thing. Yeah. Once everything's in the shaker, splash in some Grand Marnier, measure it with your heart, whatever floats your boat, and add in a dash of Angostura bitters and shake it up really, really well. They recommended double straining this cocktail. However, I forgot my other strainer. (laughs) So we just strained it once and it came out just fine. Um, Once everything's in your glass, take your orange peel and twist it over the drink to release the oils and just pop it right in. And that's it. Easy peasy. It smells really good. While we were taking pictures after it was finished, I couldn't stop smelling it. She was like, "Mm." I'm not allowed to taste it until now. It does taste better than I thought it would. Ooh. I definitely did not think it was going to be good. Yeah. This is good. There are some recipes that I read and I'm like, no. But then I try it and I'm like, oh, okay. It's not a very sweet one. So Mm -hmm. I would suggest if you like sweeter stuff, maybe adding more. You could add more juice, more Grand Marnier, whatever makes you feel Mm -hmm. happy. But the classic version is half an ounce of everything and then a splish splash of the bitters and the Grand Marnier. I also recommend doing the orange peel because it gives it a really nice Mm -hmm. aroma when you're going to take your sip. It's not necessary, but it just sort of elevates your cocktail a little bit. It really does. Garnishes are important. Well, and I think one thing I learned about tasting things like through Starbucks because you they have to teach you how to like do tastings and all that kind of shit is that the aroma of something really does matter mm-hmm. so I can definitely see how it would make a difference but again not necessary you don't it's have to. like we did an experiment in home at class in high school we made 
green eggs and like regular eggs and green eggs are gross. They just look <laughs> gross. They taste they, the same as regular eggs, but it's all about but perception. It's gross. Mm-hmm. So same idea. Huh? Yeah. All right. Well, while you guys are wrapping up your cocktail, let's just take one quick minute to hear a word from some of our friends over at the Podmoth Network. Welcome to the Getting Down and Wordy podcast ad. What do we do on this podcast? Well, it's the first at a musical podcast. Can you try that again in real words so that people can understand? Fine. We talk about the intersection of popular music and language. Oh, can we also talk about Eurovision? Okay. Find us on Apple and Spotify. We are a Podmoth Network podcast. All right, friends. We've got cocktails. We're ready to go. Let's do it. So the word mass delusion refers to a collective adoption of false beliefs by a sizable group of individuals. Such shared misconceptions can lead to instances of mass hysteria, which is characterized by an emotions, uh, or I'm sorry, characterized by an eruption of atypical behaviors, thoughts, emotions, or health symptoms within a community. We kind of briefly mentioned that last week Mm -hmm. that, you know, the whole yawning thing. So the term mass hysteria is commonly used to denote the spread of panic and fear. That's what we're talking about here. Pretty much. These episodes are kind of walking you through the progression from mass delusion to an incredibly intense manifestation of mass hysteria. The satanic panic of the 1980s still stands as one of the lengthiest mass media induced panics in American history, which is crazy when you think about it. I know. Especially back then, like I said last week, we didn't have computers in our pockets like we do now. Right. So for the fact that this spread like wildfire is still kind of unbelievable. Truly. This period saw the spread of an of alarming portrayals in the media depicting innocent children under the sway of deviant music and television programming. Movies like The Exorcist introduced a religious dimension to the occult not previously seen on screens, at least not to that magnitude. The sudden pervasiveness of satanic themes seemed to threaten the moral fabric and livelihoods of many, amplifying the sense of fear and apprehension. And then the infamous book Michelle Remembers happened. Dun, dun, dun. For those of you that may have missed last week, this book was kind of the big catalyst that really kicked everything satanic panic related into super high gear mm-hmm. michelle remembers documented memories and or experiences that allegedly were repressed until michelle underwent several hypnosis sessions with her therapist the book went into these recovered memories with great detail and at the time these stories were looked at as unequivocal facts and were used as a guideline by the entire entire legislative and judicial branches of our government all of this has since been debunked just a big fat load of hooey. Of nonsense. <laughs> um, an article from 2002 details some of the many reasons why these experiences was, were unlikely to have happened. And here are some examples. So it's incredibly unlikely that a sophisticated cult that had secretly existed for generations could be outwitted by a five-year-old. Just unraveled completely. Just mm-hmm. throwing that out there. It's also unlikely that said cult could hold rituals in the Ross Bay Cemetery unnoticed, which is where Michelle claimed this all went down. She said she was screaming during these rituals. It just so happens, however, that that cemetery is surrounded on three sides by residential neighborhoods. So it seems pretty odd 
that no one heard anything of the sort coming from the cemetery at that time or or any time for that or, matter. I was going to say or at all. <laughs> it's incredibly unlikely that an 81 day nonstop ceremony involving hundreds of participants inside a massive round room could have gone on unnoticed. Well, how did everybody get there? Right. Is Who, it underground? Was everybody just calling off work? <laughs> like, well, I guess what? they're also independently wealthy. They don't need to go to work I or just school don't... or anything. <laughs> Literally, though. I See guess. how like how crazy that sounds it, when you say it out loud. It just sounds ridiculous, right? Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, to I me, mean, it does. I was going to say to to me, to you, to our listeners, probably. It <laughs> like, should right. <laughs> it should also be noted that none of Michelle's tormentors have ever been identified, except for her mother, who was deceased mm-hmm. at the time that all these allegations were revealed. Right. Per Michelle, some of her tormentors had an incredibly identifying injury. It was alleged that during that, you know, crazy black mass party rave thing that went on for 81 days, <laughs> the 81 day ritual, some of the members of the cult actually cut off their middle fingers. So that would make, in my opinion, them pretty easy to find. And people went looking for people to corroborate this story. So you have hundreds of people that apparently went through this whole thing. Some of which are missing fingers mm-hmm. and no, there's not a single person who knows somebody who's missing a finger. Like, nope, there's nobody like moving bags of cement, like in SVU, like that just happened to have seen somebody. It's just come on, guys. During this alleged 81 day ritual, Michelle's attendance in school was verified. So not only did everybody not call off work. Michelle still went to school and additionally there were no remarkable absences or there weren't any apparent signs that she was being abused at the time. Obviously that's not an end all be all, but even then schools were trained to kind of like look at stuff. Well, especially a prolonged absence like that, like screaming for 81 days would probably cause (laughs) a lot of physical issues. Mm -hmm. Like just the absence alone would have been enough if, I feel like if they would have went to Michelle's school and they were like, yeah, you know what? She actually did miss almost three months of school. Then I'd be like, okay, it's time to maybe look into this a little deeper. Willing to have more of a conversation. Well, even, and like we mentioned last week, her dad was like, none, none of this happened. She didn't miss school. (laughs) She was in bed every night. I would have noticed if she was gone for 81 days and so was her mother. Like that. And that's just it too. You know, there's just so many witnesses that are able to, in this give them an alibi right that debunks this whole thing right it's just crazy so uh, these recovered memories seem to represent elements of pop culture at the time as well as the author's religious beliefs rather than something that supposedly happened at least 20 years earlier the working theory here is that she made it up however <laughs> there were still a considerable number of people then and now that still believe this book to be filled with the truth. Uh, you can still purchase it on Amazon. You can. <laughs> Just because every time I curious. tried to Google it, it kept trying to get me to buy it. And I was like, no, no thank, thank you. you. <laughs> I'm good. First of all, my to be read list already ridiculously long. I know. Mine Can't is completely full. <laughs> my bookshelf has like 30 books on it right now that I have not read yet. I'll get there. I just someday. keep adding more. So in the year 
1984, Lawrence Pazder, the therapist that worked with Michelle, that was co-author of the book, he went on to serve as a consultant during the infamous McMartin preschool trial, which just so happened to be the longest and most expensive criminal trial in American history. By the time this case was all over, the government had spent seven years and $15 million on a case that led absolutely nowhere. Zero. Nada. Zilch. Nothing. And it it ruined people's lives. For what? Absolutely did. For what? (laughs) I mean, we'll get into it. Right. (laughs) But for nothing. (laughs) Exactly. Long story short. (laughs) Zero convictions were taken out of this in any way, shape, or form. Pretty sure all of the charges got dropped by the end of it. Mm Mm-hmm. This trial, though, played a gigantic role in keeping the panic and fear going. It was literally like putting lighter fluid on a bonfire. So let's get into what happened. In 1983, a woman named Judy Johnson filed a report with the local police. Oh, Judy. She's not our good Judy. Mm -mm. She claimed that her son had been sodomized, not by not just one man, but two. The accused were her estranged husband and her son's preschool teacher, Ray Bucky. So this accusation was made after Judy took her son to the doctor. The young boy complained that his anus itched and he had been having painful bowel movements. And according to Judy, she'd even seen a spot of blood on the affected area. So she went into guns a blazing. Yes. Which I mean... As you should. If you feel like that's happening to your child, that is the appropriate response. There was a lot more happening. However, um, the charge was made on August 12th, but wasn't really taken that seriously until Judy went back to police on the 18th. Less than two weeks later, Judy and her son, Billy, went to the police station for a more formal sit down interview, if you will. Billy reported that he had, in fact, been abused by Ray Bucky. And a week later, Bucky, who was the grandson of the school's founder, was arrested. The day after his arrest, the police chief drafted a letter informing other parents about what was going on at the McMartin preschool. The letter reads as follows. Dear parents, this department is conducting a criminal investigation involving child molestation. Ray Bucky, an employee of Virginia McMartin's preschool, was arrested September 7th, 1983 by this department. The following procedure is obviously an unpleasant one. But to protect the rights of your children, as well as the rights of the accused, this inquiry is necessary for a complete investigation. Records indicate that your child has been or is currently a student at the preschool. We are asking your assistance in this continuing investigation. Please question your child to see if he or she has been a witness to any crime or if he or she has been a victim. Our investigation indicates that possible criminal acts include oral sex, fondling of genitals, buttock or chest area, and sodomy, possibly committed under the pretense of, quote unquote, taking the child's temperature. Also, photos may have been taken of children without their clothing. Any information from your child regarding having ever observed Ray Bucky to leave a classroom alone with a child during any nap period or if they have ever observed Ray Bucky tie up a child is important. Please complete the enclosed information form and return it to this department in the enclosed stamped return envelope as soon as possible. We will contact you if circumstances dictate the same. 
We ask you to please keep this investigation strictly confidential because of the nature of the charges and the highly emotional effect it could have on our community. Please do not discuss this investigation with anyone outside your immediate family. Do not con do not contact or discuss the investigation with Raymond Bucky, any member of the accused defendant's family, or employees connected with the McMartin Preschool. In all capitals, the ending reads, there is no evidence to indicate that the management of Virginia McMartin's preschool had any knowledge of this situation, and no detrimental information concerning the operation of the school has been discovered during this investigation. Also, no other employee in the school is under investigation for any criminal act. That's all in capitals. Wow. Mm -hmm. But how many times did they mention Raymond Bucky? Also, like six by name. <laughs> I have so many questions as to why they wrote out all of the accusations in the letter. Because you know they wanted results, Brie. Right. <laughs> right. Right, 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 right. How could I forget? <laughs> So after the letter was sent, several hundred children were interviewed by the Children's Institute International, an L.A.-based abuse therapy clinic run by social worker Key McFarland. Little fun fact about her, she was actually the one who developed the idea of using anatomically correct dolls when interviewing a child. McFarland utilized these dolls and puppets, as well as other highly suggestive techniques during the interview she conducted with the children. She routinely asked the kids to point to the places where they had been touched, allegedly, and she would follow that up with leading questions, which of course led to a diagnosis of sexual abuse in virtually all the children that attended McMartin Preschool. Later research demonstrated that these methods of questioning were extremely suggestive, leading to false accusations. This included rewards for statements describing abuse and punishment of denials. Hmm. So that's so not helpful in this situation. It's kind of illegal. Well, that too, <laughs> especially with children. Like, <laughs> right. Whoa. Some believe that the questioning itself may have led to false memory syndrome among the children being questioned, which I feel like there's an argument for that. I absolutely believe that. Yes. The trial testimony that resulted from these methods wound up being contradictory and vague in all the details, except for the fact that the abuse happened. By the spring of 1984, around 360 children had claimed to have been abused. That's so many children. So many. Only 41 of these children testified in the grand jury and pretrial hearings, however, Fewer than a dozen testified at the actual trials. So if that tells you anything about the information we've gathered here. Right. Ugh. So Astrid Eppenstahl Hager performed medical examinations and took photos of what she believed to be minute scarring in the children. She stated that the scarring had to have been caused by anal penetration, only that nothing else could explain it. Literally zero other explanation was given. <laughs> right. Journalist John Earl believed that these findings were based on unsubstantiated medical histories. So basically it was all fabricated to fit the case. Right. Not fabricated, but exaggerated maybe uh, i guess that's a better dramatized. word dramatized <laughs> because again ab abuse of children is never okay abuse of anybody Correct. is never okay so i get why we're taking it seriously but when we get into the other things that were being said here it's like what what well and that's the thing at the end of the day that like 
the satanic panic as a whole truly did kind of have a long lasting effect on the justice system. The way that we handled and approached possible child abuse definitely changed. And I think for the good overall. Right. But the way we got there was not pretty. Is not great. Because granted, this might be the best known example, but this is by far not the only one. Yeah. One of many. For sure. For sure. So a man named Michael P. Maloney was a clinical psychologist and professor of psychiatry. He reviewed a lot of the videotapes of the children's interviews. He actually went on to testify as an expert witness on interviewing children, and he was highly critical of the techniques used. He referred to them as improper, coercive, directive, problematic, and adult-directed in a way that forced the children to follow a rigid script. I don't like any part of that. Me neither. Mm -hmm. And he concluded that, quote, many of the kids' statements in the interviews were generated by the examiner, end quote. I believe it. I do, too. Especially that letter alone. I know. It was almost like, here's exactly what we want you to ask your children. Specifically, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And I mean, you can't. His name's Raymond Bucky. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) You can't do that with adults. Like in potential adult perpetrators. I was mm-hmm. like, what word am I trying to oh, think yeah, of? Like a trial. You can't. That's literally a leading statement. Yeah. Like, uh, and witnesses and all that kind of stuff. Like you just can't do it. But it's okay for children who have even less of a defense of a like they they don't know how to critically think quite yet you know there's so many things about their brain that just isn't formed well, yet this was pre this is preschool so this is right. like little like three-year-olds <laughs> right they're gonna say whatever they want to say to get the lollipop that you're dangling in front of their face which a literal mm-hmm. lollipop too i'm not even exaggerating <laughs> So transcripts and recordings of the interviews contain far more speech from the adults than the children that were being interviewed Mm. and demonstrated that despite the highly coercive interviewing techniques used, initially the children were actually resistant to the interviewers' attempts to elicit disclosures. Oh, I wonder why. Perhaps they were being aggressive and the small children were scared. Um, The recordings of the interviews were actually instrumental in the jury's refusal to convict by demonstrating how children could be coerced by giving vivid and dramatic testimonies without having experienced any of the actual abuse. You get one kid with a good imagination in there, they'll tell you they will spin a tale that rivals the Odyssey. Oh, for sure. (laughs) I believe it. Um, the techniques that were used by these interviewers were shown to be contrary to the existing guidelines in California for the investigation of cases involving children and child witnesses. So they were actually breaking the rules. <laughs> <laughs> like they were literally breaking the law. I And again, it's it's not funny, but like what? It's, no, you're right. This, this insane, crazy case is just all... Pretend. What's crazy to me, too, isn't even just the delusion and the hysteria and the beliefs that went behind it, but that it was completely okay that these people lied, committed perjury, coerced children to give false. Bullying the children into sharing their viewpoint. And I don't, that's the exact opposite of what they should be doing. Right. If you're in it for the children's best interest, 
you wouldn't be doing this. Right. You wouldn't go about it this way. That's, you just wouldn't. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> and that's the thing, right? Because at the end of all of this, like, spoiler alert, nobody went after the prosecution. Nobody went after the people that made these accusations in any kind of way or who coerced the children. Many people got to continue pretending to be experts mm -hmm. after this trial, even after it was formally, hey, we fucked up. Right. <laughs> like even it's just I don't know. The kids honestly did suffer in this whole situation, but not in the way that people wanted us to think. Right. So some of these accusations were described as bizarre. And boy, were they. And they overlapped with accusations that mirrored the emergent satanic panic ritual abuse all the things it was alleged it was alleged that in addition to having been sexually abused the children saw witches fly traveled in a hot air balloon and were taken through underground tunnels mm -hmm. i'm terrified of heights but for most kids the hot air balloon probably would have been fun i feel like they see those a lot in their books their picture books as being like adventure mm -hmm. <laughs> When shown a series of photographs by Danny Davis, the McMartin's lawyer, one child identified actor Chuck Norris as one of the abusers. So goes to show how great this was going. Right. It must all be true, right? <laughs> Chuck Norris, though, of all people. <laughs> I mean, he was a big. But why would he be an abuser? Wasn't he a good guy back in the day? Well, I I don't know. This is strictly an assumption on my part, so I could be really fucking wrong. And please correct me if I if I am. But I feel like in cases like this, especially when you're trying to get picture ID from children, having somebody in there that's so well known mm -hmm. but wouldn't be to a toddler, but would be very obvious to law enforcement that it's you know what I mean? Yeah. Like can't be like mistaken. Oh, well yeah. Do you know what I'm trying to say? This can't be the perpetrator because it's Chuck Norris. What would he be doing here? Correct. Okay. And and it was, you know, Chuck Norris isn't in Virginia or California, wherever it was. Right. I can't remember. It's this California. One. <laughs> um, so some of the abuse was alleged to have occurred in this those secret tunnels under the school. They actually did several excavations, which did turn up evidence of old buildings on the site and some debris from before the school was built. One guy even said there was like a rapper from the 50s or something and he's like <laughs> it was probably a rat that dragged it right. under the school because it had yum yums on it. Like hello. <laughs> People though really it's definitely would. definitely tunnels that we filled in though to hide the evidence. People definitely would reach for anything that they could even possibly use. Anything that was like... <laughs> tangent to being concrete yes. evidence mm -hmm. <laughs> um these excavations did not however turn up any evidence of any secret chambers or tunnels or meeting rooms or anything of the sort i found a picture on google of somebody in a hard hat like watching them break up the grounds mm -hmm. and the guys look on like the look on the guy's face just looks so over it and i don't know if that's even a real thing but it was kind of funny to me to be to picture this guy sitting there thinking we it's have probably, to look for secret tunnels that don't exist. <laughs> probably a California state engineer that they've got on site to make sure those tunnels don't collapse. Something and he's like just that, like, yeah. I can't believe this is my Saturday <laughs> yeah. or whatever, you and know. I could totally, again, be misinterpreting the picture, but it was just a funny thought I had. So 
In addition to flying witches and hot air balloon rides, there were claims of orgies at car washes and airports. Weird. And, of course, of children being flushed down toilets. Because why wouldn't that be a thing? But where did they go, Brie? Secret rooms where they would be abused, then cleaned up and presented back to their parents. That seems like so much work in a four... Preschool's what, four hours? Yeah. I... Again, though... It also seems really made up. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, <laughs> secret trapdoor toilet. We like no at a car wash in an airport. Oh my goodness! Airport, I could kind of see. Like, Airports are wild places. I was gonna say, and you know, it just the nature of an airport, and you're there to travel, all that kind of stuff. Like I, I could see a really weird Twilight Zone connection to that. But wasn't there? There's a whole movie about a man that lived in an airport for like years. Ah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I know, you know what you're talking about. Crazy shit happens at airports. Exactly. <laughs> but you lost me. I don't me. think this crazy though. You lost me at the car wash, right? Well, you lost me a long time ago. Well, obviously. yeah, we've been lost. <laughs> <laughs> um, some child interviewees talked of a game called Naked Movie Star and suggested that they were forcibly photographed nude. Which, if it was true, yes, that's incredibly concerning, right? But during trial testimony, some children stated that Naked Movie Star, that the game was just a rhyming taunt used to tease other children. And it went, what you say is what you are. You're a naked movie star. Cannot say I have ever heard that one before I typed it out. (laughs) I mean, same, but... It tracks. Right. I mean, when we were kids, it was just another dumb shit. This is another stupid rhyme. Well, and honestly, the children themselves were like, this has nothing to do with naked pictures. Right. We just thought it was funny. You know, they're three or four or five. I think Billy was like two and a half. The son of Judy. I'm pretty sure he was not even three years old. I don't even know how. How is he giving an interview to police? Girl. That's I just, that's one of many questions. I feel the thing is that too, still remain unanswered. I do feel really bad for the kids because I definitely feel like they went through so much. But it just I think this because is, of this the adults be, that put them through these interviews and all of this trial shenanigans. This trial lasted fucking forever. Also, why are children testifying at grand juries and stuff? It just gives me the heebs and the jeebs. Judy Johnson started pretty much all of this Mm. she made bizarre and impossible statements specifically about raymond bucky including that he could fly that's the kind of that's that is the adult that we're dealing with here and although the prosecution asserted that judy's mental illness she was oh i accidentally deleted it i think it was schizophrenic i believe so yeah and i believe also an alcoholic Yes. She had a lot of things happening. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that I would trust anything she said either. Right. And I feel like the prosecution was trying to be like, so, yeah, she has all these issues. But that was caused be- by the trial. And that she had admitted to all of this before she went like cuckoo bananas. But the reality is, is that she was actually mentally ill for much longer Right. Diagnosed for a very, very long time. Right. Before this happened. So I think all this just exacerbated it. You know what I mean? I feel like this was a symptom of it. Of media attention and stuff. Like she was interviewed. It was all over the place. Like as soon as I got to schizophrenia in your research, I was like, oh, this makes sense as to why she was assuming her children were being taken off 
in hot air balloons and being flushed down toilets and things like right. that. Like, of course, a schizophrenic thought of that. Right. It sounds crazy. That also makes me sad for her, too, because look at what she put her kids through for, for her what? own pain. You know what I mean? Which is also sad in its own way. Regardless, evidence of this <laughs> mental illness was withheld from the defense for three years, which is a big no-no in our justice system. And when it was provided, it was in the form of sanitized reports that excluded her statements at the order of the prosecution. So that's really illegal. Well, and you know what's funny, guys? They still didn't win. I know. They did all of this super shady shit. And they still didn't get a conviction. Not a one charge stuck on any of it. <sighs> what does that say? This is either a very terrible prosecutor or it's all made up. It was a whole gang of them, too, because one of the original prosecutors, a man named Glenn Stevens, actually left the case in protest and stated that other prosecutors had withheld evidence from the defense not just in Judy's mental illness happening, but also the including information that her son did not actually identify Raymond Bucky in a series of photographs. So he wasn't even the one. He's out here being, being pointed like out. Chuck Norris. Right. Did Heck yeah. All these terrible things. <laughs> um, Stevens also accused Robert Filibosian, the deputy district attorney on the case of lying and withholding evidence from the court and the defense lawyers to keep the Buckies in jail and prevent access to exonerating evidence. So that's some that's some very yeah. lofty claims we're making here. In this case, I think they're actually all true. I agree. <laughs> but yeah. no, but nobody listened. Mm -hmm. No, they were like, mm, you're wrong. Oh, no. It, it was far too gone for that. Now, essentially, there were two trials conducted for the McMartin preschool case. The first one lasted from July 13th, 1987 to January 18th, 1990. And the second one picked up May 7th, 1990. And it lasted to July of the same year. So not the second one wasn't too terribly long, but still. Here's the thing, though. It all got rolling in, what, 1983? Yeah. That's a long fucking time. 1980, I think it was August of 1980. Yeah, it was August of 1983 that she first made the allegation. So on March 22nd, 1984, Virginia McMartin, Ray's grandma, Peggy McMartin Bucky, his mother, Ray Bucky himself, Ray's sister, Peggy Ann Bucky, and teachers Mary Ann Jackson, Betty Rader, and Babette Spittler were charged with 115 counts of child abuse. This was later expanded uh, to 321 counts of child abuse, which involved 48 children. Could you imagine being charged with that? They were hysterical because... Virginia McMartin founded the school. Right. This was her, not only her livelihood, but like her pride and joy. You know what I mean? It was and her a family passion affair. And all the like things, yeah. Those teachers were dedicated to those children. And <laughs> what? <laughs> I just, I couldn't imagine it at all. So there was 20 months of preliminary hearings. The prosecution led these. It was eternal Leo Rubin during which he presented their theory of sexual abuse. The children's testimony during the preliminary hearings was inconsistent at best. Michelle Smith, remember our girl Michelle, and her buddy 
slash husband slash therapist, Lawrence, Gross. met with the parents and children involved in the case and were believed by the initial prosecutor, Glenn Stevens, to have influenced the children's testimony. It's almost like this man was telling everybody the truth and they were like, nah, <laughs> nah. Because the truth doesn't push forward their agenda, their shenanigans. So in 1986, a new district attorney arrived on the scene named Ira Reiner, called the evidence, quote unquote, incredibly weak and dropped all charges against Virginia McMartin, Peggy Ann Bucky, Mary Ann Jackson, Betty Rader and Babette Spittler. However, Peggy McMartin Bucky and Ray Bucky remained in custody awaiting trial. Peggy McMartin's bail, in case you were curious, was set at one million dollars. Ray Bucky was actually denied bail. That's crazy. Just completely. No. I just don't understand how she can be like, "Ah, this is just, there's no evidence and dropped all the charges against everybody except for Ray. But there's no evidence. I have questions. Uh, Yep. Still. (laughs) Everybody does. I still will for a long time, probably. (laughs) So the first trial opened on July 13th, 1987. During the trial, the prosecution presented seven medical witnesses for what we do not know. The defense attempted to rebut them with several witnesses, but the judge limited them to one to save time. Because that's what we should be concerned about. Mm -hmm. Seven medical to one why why couldn't they both just get one what split the difference they could both kind of three right 3.5 <laughs> you only get to have half your testimony mm-hmm. um in their summation the prosecution argued that they had seven experts on this issue when the defense only had one that was literally part of their closing arguments they're like well as you saw we had seven and they could only muster up one I just would have been like, mm. I would not. This is how I would have gotten removed from the bar association as a lawyer. Because I've been like, or what the fuck? <laughs> probably put in jail for what is physically it? fighting uh, uh, contempt of court. Yeah. When you just start screaming stuff. <laughs> Order in the court. So in 1989, Peggy Ann Bucky appealed to have her teaching credentials reinstated. That was granted. The judge ruled that there was no credible evidence or corroboration to lead to the license being suspended in the first place, and that a review of the videotaped interviews with McMartin children, and I quote, revealed a pronounced absence of any evidence implicating Peggy Ann in any wrongdoing and raises additional doubts of credibility with respect to the children interviewed or with respect to the value of CII interviewing techniques themselves. That's the one that's run by what's-her-face. By the puppets and the dolls. Mm -hmm. The following day, the state credentialing board in Sacramento endorsed the ruling and restored Peggy Ann's right to teach. But that's good. You still have this whole big giant cloud of horribleness hanging over you. Right. Because your son is still being prosecuted. Still sitting in jail. Right. But there's no evidence. The charges against everybody else got dropped. Just keeping a tally for us as we move forward. Now, here's where things get real fun. In October 1987, jailhouse informant George Freeman was called as a witness. Why? Well, because he had information about Ray Bucky and he testified that Ray had confessed to him while sharing a cell. However, but Freeman later attempted to flee the country and confessed to perjury 
in a series of other criminal cases in which he manufactured testimony in exchange for favorable treatment by the prosecution. And this happened in several instances where he fabricated jailhouse confessions of other inmates. I feel like this happens a lot. <laughs> I feel like we have talked about the same human <laughs> like several times before. I know, just reincarnated as this guy instead yep. of that other guy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to guarantee Freeman's testimony during the McMartin case, because the prosecution desperately needed this, he was given complete immunity from any previous charges of perjury. <laughs> it's Isn't almost like crazy? you get the sweet deal for just saying what they want you to say. I mean, it's... I hate it here. This is just ridiculous. <laughs> it is. It really is. Like, like I said, <laughs> if any part of this sounded like true in the or, least or, or even could be legit in any way, then yes, I would not be like, ha ha ha. But right. come on now. You're granting this man complete immunity, but only yeah. if he says all the things. I mean, you and I don't really care to cover cases that have to do with kids in the first place. Right. That's not really our vibe. Um, the part of the reason that we're doing this is because it's all, it's all a farce. And I just, mm, she mm -hmm. is shaking her damn head. Yeah. <laughs> so on January 18th, 1990, after three years of testimony and nine weeks of deliberation by the jury, Peggy McMartin Bucky was acquitted on all counts. Ray Bucky was cleared on 52 of 65 counts and finally freed on bail after more than five years of sitting in jail. That's still 13 counts, though. Five years sitting in jail with no bail. <laughs> because he flew Ooh. on a broom. Mm -hmm. Allegedly. And went to a car wash. Allegedly. For an Allegedly. orgy. Allegedly. <laughs> Who's having... Real question. The real question is, who is having orgies at car washes? Because that could get real dangerous. I saw the movie The Crazies. You don't want to fuck around in there. I have not. I'm good. Oh my gosh. They probably meant the one with the cinder blocks where you just hose the car off, not the mm. moving ones. Because there ain't nobody messing around in those, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I didn't think so before today. Right. <laughs> uh, nine of 11 jurors at a press conference following the trial stated that they actually believed the children had been molested, but the evidence did not allow them to state who had committed the abuse beyond a reasonable doubt, hence why they've, you know, voted the way they voted. Mm. 11 out of the 13 jurors who remained by the end of the trial voted to acquit Bucky of the charges. The refusal of the remaining two to vote for a not guilty verdict resulted in a deadlock. Because of course it did. Uh, nothing here is easy. This poor man. <laughs> well, and then they went on to retry six out of the 13 counts of which he was not acquitted for in the first trial. The second trial was the one that opened on May 7th of 1990, and it resulted in another hung jury later that summer. The prosecution then gave up. They were just like, you know what? We're going to stop trying to obtain a conviction. Doesn't seem like it's really going in our favor. I feel favor. like they were like, the evidence isn't there right now, but we might prosecute again if need be. I think and that's then what they were trying crickets. to do. They just. Well, they didn't have it because it didn't exist. Correct. <laughs> and finally, you know, the case against Ray was closed and all the charges were dismissed. Overall, he had been jailed for five years without ever being convicted of committing any crime. I did not actually Google to see where this man is at now, but I hope he's out there somewhere. 
Yeah. Having a good life because you can't ever teach again after something like this, right? At least not in the area. You'd have to move. Or at all, I would think, right? I mean, it really depends. I... I don't know for sure how these kinds of things work, but there shouldn't technically be anything well, on the be record. Any legal ramifications or anything like that, but anything where they'd check your name or your references to work with children, ha- they'd yeah. be like, mm, like a Google search, but like legal. Yeah. Would any of this come up? If I'm it was sure, dropped and dismissed, would it go away? Technically speaking, I feel like legally it would have to be dismissed and gone i mean i would think people get their records expunged all the time it's as if it didn't happen i would imagine in this case it would be the same but i just feel like the stigma associated with it would never go away it was so it was televised and Mm -hmm. everybody was seeing what was happening play out in real time and it was just it made national news so that makes it 10 times harder i would imagine well It should be noted here, there were satanic elements of abuse pretty early on in the case, but those did get dropped relatively early. Because that's not what this was actually about. Right. Again, though, the case did attract national attention initially due to those satanic ritual abuse claims. These elements were sensationalized. They were reported on and reported on and reported on, and then they were exaggerated even further by the press. Yeah. We have the media really truly to thank for the satanic panic oh for sure one of the former mcmartin students who actually made allegations to the police his um a man named kyle told the la times quote i lied it was an ordeal i remember thinking to myself i'm not going to get out of here unless i tell them what they want to hear end quote that's where that lollipop comes in right Bree? yes that's why mm-hmm. you're four years old you just want to Go you just home. want to go home and have right. fun. I'm I'm 34 years old and I, I just want to go I home. I still aspire to that. <laughs> so shortly after the McMartin case began, more than 100 other preschools across the country became the object of similar sensationalist allegations, which were eagerly and uncritically reported by the press. Again, they just hyped it up. Oh my gosh, they had so much fun. I feel like the news, like the media as a whole having a ball i know <laughs> this entire time That's sad at the expense of people like ray bucky and these poor children it's, oh, it's i know it was always like that before it's expense. gonna be like that since i mean throughout the mcmartin trial media coverage of the defendants peggy mcmartin and ray bucky specifically was unrelentingly negative focusing only on statements by the prosecution Michelle Smith and other alleged survivors met with parents involved in the trial and it is believed again that they influence that testimony with their beliefs their words their anything pick one that that's crazy now the mcmartin trial is the most notable and time-consuming case to come out of the satanic panic but it wasn't the only one Mm -mm. anyone here a fan of stranger things i know susan's If the answer is yes, then you're probably aware that metal music wasn't the only form of entertainment under attack during this time. Dungeons and Dragons, as well as other role-playing games in that same vein, were deemed to be demonic at best. Patricia Pauline deserves a good chunk of credit for this. She was a licensed private investigator turned anti-occult campaigner. What a very specific resume. It really was. She founded BAD. B-A-D-D, 
stands for Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons. That just, that's the best you could come up with? I was telling Mark when I was kind of bouncing off the idea for how I wanted to lay out the script and everything. I was telling him about this and I was like, have you ever heard of this bad? And he's like, no, I was like, it's bothered against about Dungeons and Dragons. He's like, what's the real name? I was like, that is the real, like, I'm not (laughs) fucking with you. That is the real name. Oh no. (laughs) Now, this was an advocacy group dedicated to the regulation of these types of games. Pauline formed this group kind of as a response to her son, Irving, taking his own life. So I can only imagine the pain that she was in. Unfortunately, does not really excuse a lot of her actions, but she just focuses it on the wrong spot. <laughs> truly. Irving was an incredibly active role-playing game enthusiast, if you will. And in his most recent campaign before his death, his character actually was cursed. Hmm. For some reason, Pat thought that this was what drove her son to suicide. I do not play D&D personally, but I do enjoy listening to some podcasts where they are playing D&D because it's a fantasy game and it's role-playing. And if people are into it and like they're good at it, it's really interesting right. to listen to. I, I don't know how you can even think it's anything but fantasy, but Pat was not in the right state of mind, obviously. Also, during this time period, there was a lot of things that would lead her to believe that it had to be demonic. Well, and the McMartin case really played a role in that, because once all of these accusations came out, it was so easy for people to look at pretty much anything in their life that was causing or upsetting or any of those things or even just difference and something that you're unsure about and just start questioning things. And then you add your son taking his own life. It's hard to be mad at it. Right. Right. (laughs) So Pat started off by filing a wrongful death lawsuit against her son's high school principal claiming that he was ultimately responsible. She also tried suing TSR Inc., the publishers of D&D. Bad came along after those attempts to hold somebody legally responsible for her son's death failed. She used this group to push out publications of her beliefs and began circulating them pretty much wherever she could. She thought that D&D encouraged devil worship and suicide, Bad actually described the game as, quote, a homosexuality, prostitution, satanic type rituals, gambling, barbarism, cannibalism, sadism, desecration, demon summoning, necromantics, divination, and other teachings. It's a game, guys. You have to roll dice. You have to do some really math. Really cool dice. Do some yeah. fun stuff. You go on like side quests and shit. If you, if anybody out there listening is into it or thinks that you would like it, I highly would recommend the podcast called Dungeons and Dragons Wagons. They, it's older. It came out in like 2018 or 19 maybe. Mm-hmm. But it's got some of my hosts from my favorite podcast and it's fucking hilarious. And the work they put into creating this entire world that they played in, crazy. They edit like a movie, 10 out of 10. Wow. If you guys check it out, you should let me know because I'd love to talk to somebody about it. That's (laughs) funny. Of course, none of the things that Bad was saying deterred any children, I don't think, from playing the games they wanted to play or listening to the music they wanted to listen to. Or watching the TV shows they wanted to watch. It's like, that's just the nature of children, right? Or 
you know, some adults like me, if you tell me not to do something, I'm immediately going to be like, no, well, I that's all I want to more. do. And as the popularity of D&D grew, Pat's statements became increasingly called into question. For example, this one's fun. <laughs> She once told a newspaper reporter that 8% of the people living in Richmond, Virginia, were Satanists. She had arrived at that figure, she explained, by estimating that 4% of adults and 4% of teenagers were involved with Satanism and added them up to get to 8%. Whose estimates? When the reporter informed her that mathematically that was 4%, not 8%, she claimed that it didn't matter because even 8% was a conservative figure. Who? Again, she is on the same page with Geraldo. <laughs> Whose estimates? Just Where mine. are they getting these numbers? Brain. From the air. We. It's okay that I didn't math that correctly because it's probably not the right number anyways. All right, lady. And everybody's just supposed to be like, you're right, Pat. <laughs> like, Dungeons oh, wow. Dungeons and Dragons, Satanists, yeah. My whole life has been changed. <laughs> so... We're going to kind of get into a little bit of the aftermath. Then we're going to kind of dive into some other notable cases slash trials slash lawsuits that didn't really come to fruition or go anywhere. Wrap it up with some modern satanic panic shenanigans. So some of the aftermath, the panic kind of sort of ended somewhere between 1992 and 1995. There it was, at least like petered out. It started to dissipate. Yeah, There was a HBO made-for-TV movie that was released titled Indictment, the McMartin Trial, in 1995. And it basically showed Ray Bucky as a victim rather than an abusive predator. I mean... So I think that kind of helped add some finality to this was not something that was a thing. This movie also kind of marked a watershed change in public perceptions about the satanic ritual abuse accusations as a whole. So it's kind of, That's I feel why like we picked that as like one of the end dates because yeah. hypothetically, I don't know how many people watched the HBO made for TV movie. I did not. Right. But people were out there watching it, seeing him as a victim instead of as the crazy broom flying well, orgy having toilet flusher. <laughs> well, and sometimes you need to have that other perspective shown to you and kind of per presented to you in order for you to, at the very least, take in that information right. and make a fully informed decision about what you think. Right. Because then at least you have both sides. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this was my favorite part. In 1995, also, Geraldo Rivera issued an apology for his 1987 television special, which had focused on the alleged mm. cults. And, you know, his numbers also were not mathing. Yeah, no, <laughs> not even a little bit. <sighs> By 2003, allegations of ritual abuse were met with great skepticism. So finally getting somewhere with all of this. Uh, essentially, belief in SRA was no longer considered mainstream, especially in professional circles. And although actual abuse of children is very, very real and should be taken very, very, very seriously, the allegations of SRA were essentially just false, just unequivocally false. <laughs> there's no other way to put it. No, it's I know. just not true. <laughs> I was like, there's not even an eloquent way to say it. It's mm -mm. just no. <laughs> mm -mm. Just no. <laughs> 
So reasons for the collapse of the phenomena of satanic panic include the failure of criminal prosecutions against any of the alleged abusers or most of the alleged abusers, a growing number of scholars, officials, and reporters questioning the reality of the accusations, and a variety of successful lawsuits against mental health professionals and their recovered memories ideas. <laughs> Some critics of the SRA diagnoses maintain that while attempting to purge the society of evil, the panic of the 90s, the 80s and 90s kind of obscured actual child abuse issues, which is fair. Mm -hmm. You know, all of this took time, money, resources, anything really you could think of away from actual cases and actual investigations that should have been looked into and focused on. I read something a lot of law enforcement professionals were looking for satanic elements everywhere and mm -hmm. overlooking actual abuse. I think that I think that makes not, sense. Not purposefully. Yeah. Just because they were so hyper focused on the one angle, they were missing the larger picture. You know what I mean? And I think that's it's really interesting that the media played such a role because it was constantly reinforced day in and day out that this was a problem and that you needed to look for it. And if you didn't look for it, you were going to miss it. And if you missed it, your kid was getting flushed on a toilet in the airport and then right. it's just game right. over. Or kidnapped by an underground cult for 81 days. Yeah. <laughs> I can't even pretend to be serious. I know. <laughs> um, the SRA panic also kind of minimized physical and sexual abuse by putting those after sra kind of like a hierarchy if you will which is never a good thing when it comes to that because no there's of course there's levels of abuse but at the end of the day abuse there's, is abuse right. and everybody suffers in those situations and they all need to be treated the same with the right. same care same attention you know all that kind of stuff right uh, in his book, Satanic Panic, Jeffrey Victor writes that in the United States, the groups most likely to believe rumors of SRA are rural, poorly educated, religiously conservative, white, blue collar families. That's a very specific quadrant of people. Yes. <laughs> um, with an unquestioning belief in American values who feel significant anxieties over job loss, economic decline and family disintegration, which was happening in record numbers in the 1980s. Doesn't that sound so familiar? Yes. <laughs> I feel like it's, it's just almost a repeat. like history <laughs> repeats itself. <laughs> yeah. Um, Victor considers rumors of SRA a symptom of a moral crisis and a form of scapegoating for economic and social ills. I don't think he's wrong. Uh, yeah, <laughs> honestly, I, I agree. Um, an actual survey of 12,000 cases of alleged ritual or religious abuse found that most were diagnosed with DID, which is dissociative identity disorder, as well as PTSD, which mm. is post-traumatic stress disorder. One explanation for the SRA allegations is that they were based upon false memories caused by use of discredited suggestive techniques such as hypnosis, leading questions by therapists, and also underestimating the suggestibility of their clients. Because that, let's be real, people who are going to seek therapists aren't always in the best mental state. Right. You know, they're basically talking about how the altered state of consciousness kind of that's induced by hypnosis rendered patients an unusual ability the altered state of consciousness induced by hypnosis rendered patients 
an unusual ability to produce confabulations. This is kind of a memory error consisting of the production of fabricated, distorted, or misinterpreted memories about oneself or the world. And this also often occurs with the assistance of therapists. Well, and that's why Michelle remembers, like, there there may could have been actual abuse from her mother. Right. Yeah. We In no way would we discredit that allegation in and of itself. But it's I think what part. happened here is it got twisted. So something that may have a grain of truth mm-hmm. just got manipulated until it was that. Yeah. You know what I mean? I do. Yeah, I agree. That's my theory, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> I will die on this hill. <laughs> So there's just a few examples we're going to go through really quickly of satanic panic that just came out of left field. Some of them like this first one Mm -hmm. Um, in April of 1985, thousands of curious, angry and confused customers were calling the corporate giant Procter and Gamble. You know them. They make all the things (laughs) about leaflets that accuse Procter and Gamble of using its profits from household goods to support devil worship. Mm. You may be saying, what the fudge? (laughs) Well, said W. Wallace Abbott, a senior vice president at the time, said they're simply not true. We haven't the vaguest idea how it started. All we know is people are believing it. Do you know how hard it is to fight a rumor? That is a direct quote. Could only imagine. (laughs) False rumors about Procter & Gamble had started years earlier. Many claimed that its logo of a bearded man in the moon facing 13 stars was actually a symbol of the devil. In reality, (laughs) the logo dated back to 1882 when times were different (laughs) and the stars themselves just referred to the 13 original colonies. Nothing nefarious is occurring here. However, the company actually had to start a two decade campaign to defend its name. They sent representatives to churches. They filed lawsuits and they actually have been pursuing court cases as recently as 2007, which is not that long ago. Right. The pressure also forced them to change their logo. So they had to give in to get people to leave them alone. That's crazy. It's And it sounds made up, right? Mm-hmm. You're mad about a logo? You're <laughs> right. buying toilet paper and you're thinking this man is calling <laughs> Satan? <I> well, just... <laughs> toilet paper, toilet bowls. Oh, yeah. Flushing. Oh, it's shit. It's all we coming together. <laughs> Another example, one that's actually very well known, the West Memphis Three. The West Memphis Three consists of three men convicted as teenagers back in 1994 of the 1993 murders of three boys in West Memphis, Arkansas, in the U.S. Damien Eccles was sentenced to death. Jesse Miskelly Jr. to life imprisonment plus two 20-year sentences and Jason Baldwin to life imprisonment. Here's the thing. The prosecution had little evidence other than the teenagers goth lifestyles and enjoyment of metal music to support their claims. Mm-hmm. During the trial, the prosecution asserted that the juveniles killed the children as part of a satanic ritual. Due to the dubious nature of the evidence, as well as the suspected presence of emotional bias in court, the case generated widespread controversy and was the subject of several documentaries. Like I said, very well, very well known. Mm-hmm. This case had celebrities and musicians holding fundraisers to support efforts to free the men. In July of 2007, new forensic evidence was presented in the case. 
Following a 2010 decision by the Arkansas Supreme Court regarding newly produced DNA evidence and potential juror misconduct, the West Memphis Three negotiated a plea bargain with prosecutors. We're not really going to get into it too terribly much. We just kind of wanted to give you the quick deets because we do plan on doing a full deep dive into this case, which will actually feature my darling friend, Alex. She's very knowledgeable about this case. She's very passionate about this case. And I think that she will have a lot of really good stuff to add. So in case you're wondering why we skipped over 99% of the details, that's why. But just long story short, again, these people sat in jail for years. They were goth kids. Yes. And... They were not sorry for it either. So I think they took that as like a big fuck you. Yeah. That's my opinion. But we'll get to it all More later. on that at a later date. Um, so here's a story about Judas Priest. Because their music apparently featured Satan. Was, was calling Satan. Mm-hmm. So in 1985, a uh, 20-year-old by the name of James Vance tried to sue Judas Priest. After a night of partying, he and his friend, 18-year-old Raymond Belknap, headed for a local playground and shot themselves. Belknap unfortunately did not survive the incident. However, Vance did survive and went on to file a lawsuit against Judas Priest as he claimed the subliminal messaging within their stained glass album drove him to the act. What? Again. Huh? How do people have the time to come up with the stuff? Girl. Like, I'm very sorry knows. that he shot himself and that the other person died. But, like, come on, man. Also, you made choices here (laughs) ultimately the band and their record label avoided any kind of legal responsibility for the tragedy because at the end of the day that was what it was was a tragic accident it was misfortune and bad choices probably (laughs) drugs probably alcohol bad (laughs) right bad right Mm -hmm. um so the evidence quote unquote was enough to convince concerned parents however and moral campaigners that subliminal messages promoting suicide and devil worship were in the heavy metal records that their kids were listening to nonsense it is it went as far as in 1985 a committee was formed known as the parents music resource center they made up a playlist of songs that they deemed inappropriate The list was dubbed the Filthy 15 and was used to serve as a template for proposed legislation regarding how albums should be rated, suggesting that they should come with extra warnings if the content pertained to sex, violence, drugs, alcohol, or the occult. Remember, that's how we got the little black labels that say... Parental advisory. Yep. Of the 15 songs, nine of which were metal, and these were including but not limited to Judas Priest, Eat Me Alive, Motley Crue's Bastard, ACDC's Let Me Put My Love Into You. People would go on later to say that ACDC's song Night Prowler actually served as inspiration for Richard Ramirez. He's one fucked up dude. If you don't already know, (laughs) don't worry. He's also on the docket probably for next year. Uh, another song that was on the list was Twisted Sisters, We're Not Gonna Take It. And like Sue said, this all led to the parental advisory sticker, which in and of itself, I think isn't a like, no, for bad sure. thing. Remember for a while, Walmart wouldn't sell anything that had explicit content or like... Yeah, because I went to go look for an, M- an M&M CD and it wasn't there. Yeah. I was very upset. Um, if you ever have the time... 
you can actually see the lead singer of Twisted Sister is a very well-spoken man when he wants to be. <laughs> and he went before this whatever committee it was a committee yes i don't want to say it was necessarily anything legal but everything that they said he had a very well thought out answer for Ooh, okay um and it's hilarious because he showed up in the full twisted sister gear (laughs) we're gonna have to check that out i have watched it so you know we said that this ended in the mid 90s but the reality is the satanic panic never really went away. It's still lurking out there on the interwebs. I mean, look at the response to Sam Smith's and Kim Petra's Unholy. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, everybody had their panties in a twist. There was pearl clutching all over the place. And that is a bop of a song. Right. I love it. Me too. Same <laughs> thing with Little Nas X and his song uh, Montero. Doja Cat recently is getting all sorts of bad press because well she's being stupid but also because of like her song demons and things like that it's still prevalent people are still getting attacked in pop culture but something as of recent history if you will recent-ish that's kind of bringing it to the forefront again is good old QAnon now if you live in the states you probably already know what this is but in case you don't this is a conspiracy theory that has grown in far-right political circles since november of 2017 followers of this theory believe that a shadowy group kidnaps kids tortures them and then uses their blood in satanic rituals they go right for it right right on in there right on in it uh it all started november of 2017 when a user on 4chan by the name of q clearance patriot posted for the first time the poster's username implied that they held q clearance which in case you're curious is a united states department of energy security clearance required to access top secret information on nuclear weapons and materials i see what you did there internet user um three other users initially promoted and spread these early posts this was just the beginning of the transformation of this movement from online forum obscurity to an influential conspiracy theory with actual big ass scary roots deep roots at that yes the original post was in a thread titled calm before the storm which is a phrase that former president trump had previously used to describe a gathering of american military leaders he attended quote unquote the storm later became q anon parlance for an imminent event in which thousands of alleged suspects would be arrested imprisoned and executed for being child-eating pedophiles. They really just took, like, Went what is in. the most depraved part of the satanic panic, and how do we bring that back? Bring it back to the <laughs> forefront, nonetheless. <laughs> so as QAnon spread, so did the belief among its adherents that a Satan-worshipping cable of elite politicians was ritually abusing children, and specifically, draining them of a chemical compound called adrenochrome yep okay which they believe is then ingested by said pedophiles and satan worshipers as a drug that helps them retain their youth so they're witches (laughs) but other people are bad i i don't get it girl i don't understand any of it and 
I have a family member who I'm not in great contact with who fell down this rabbit hole for a while and it got like really weird and really scary. We're going to end up probably doing a deep dive on political based conspiracy theories at some point. Mm -hmm. So we're not going to go like too crazy into this. Like, obviously, there are very clear differences between QAnon and the satanic panic of the 80s. You know, obviously, QAnon is political in nature and these conspiracy theories kind of specifically target democratic politicians and they paint former president trump as a savior and i really think that was its whole goal they said a lot of very unfortunate things about hillary clinton (laughs) yes and while she is a very controversial figure in and of herself i just think that i don't think she's eating babies i don't personally anybody is even the politicians that i can't wait to dance on their graves for <laughs> like i can't say it's not true but i have some doubts i i don't discount that people do really terrible things i mean we knew that before we started this podcast we know it even more after doing it but i mean <laughs> i don't know i don't want to say that it's not possible because anything's fucking possible Honestly, people are k razzy but they still, sure is this whole thing including what we're going through now really is nothing more than people who are getting really scared about something being taken away from them or hurt or something like that. It's all fear-based and just directing it in the strangest of ways. I struggle with an anxiety disorder. When that fear hits you, it's all consuming. I get it, but like, come the fuck on people do some deep breathing, take a minute and just let's move forward positively. Right. (laughs) Um, Our last little bit here is a word from Lawrence Wright. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning author who wrote a book about the satanic panic. He says that there are still commonalities between the believers in each movement. He even putting those fears of Satanism aside. And this is a direct quote. They see themselves as heroic. And how can you be heroic in today's world? Well, you protect the children. You protect the children against this cable that is out to turn them into sex slaves. How could there be anything more important than that? End quote. Well, and we see it all the time in politics, at least today. It's always anytime something is happening. It's what about the children? Right. Which, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't protect kids. No, for sure. I just find it very convenient that it's always something that is threatening children i don't know it just feels weird to me though no (laughs) no i don't i mean i I truly don't (laughs) well and i may have mentioned it last week but you know growing up in the religion that i did we we were taught that satan is literally like going around and whispering in people's ear trying to turn you away from god so i can see how this could happen if you already are predisposed to kind of have that religious belief or that's something you if you already believe that Satan is the worst thing. Right. And all of a sudden the exorcist is showing you just how evil possessions it can be. And like yeah. all this kind of shit. Like I don't know. It's crazy. I just I still don't believe there's anything behind it. I yeah. I agree. I think that there's a lot of um interesting moments where It was interesting to see the growth of the psychiatry behind all of this. Oh, for sure. Because they were all in when Michelle Remembers came out. Yeah. Every professional, not every professional, but many professionals were like, yep, this is the way it's got to be moving forward. Like we have to hypnotize people to get to the 
the real issues. Could you imagine here. if all of a sudden they were like mass hypnosis is like this is required? Like if they like when they required masks, could you imagine? People Everyone must have one hypnotic <laughs> hypnosis session a month. <laughs> yeah, that makes me think of those like quitting smoking things where they hypnotize everybody all at once. Like I considered actually getting hypnotized when I was trying to quit because it was really hard. <laughs> But I never went through with it because I was too nervous. I've got some trauma. Kind of weird, though. I don't know. I've got some trauma to unpack. Like I'd not want to see what would be unearthed. Maybe not in a public (laughs) forum like that. Like what I was looking into was like a one on one. mm -hmm. Still, though, again, Michelle remembers she wound up marrying the dude. That's another part of it. So you're telling me that there's nothing nefarious going on there either? Like I just don't. I call bullshit. Y'all, I don't buy it. I really want to read the book only because I'm just so curious about what I want to see that text for myself. Ooh, maybe we could do like dramatic readings or something. (laughs) We could put it on the book club list, girl. Add it to the list. I don't know. That's crazy. Any final thoughts on the satanic panic? I just feel like a lot of people, not only children, but also adults suffered because of it for nothing. Yeah. I agree. Which makes me angry and sad all at once. I was reading um, some Reddit posts, as I do, getting ready for cases. And one really interesting thread was uh, somebody asked, you know, for those of you who lived through that time period, tell me your stories. There was one really interesting one that um, I just got a chuckle out of. These teenagers were playing magic, like the card game mm-hmm. uh, at a mall. Magic Gathering. Mm-hmm. At a mall. And, you know, they're you're gothy, punky, badass kids playing magic in the middle of the food court. And this woman came up to them and he said that, that she started screaming at them that they were practicing dark magic and that they were like Satanists. And of course, this kid was like, fuck you, lady. And, you know, all this stuff. And it went as far as her calling security and the police. Oh, my. And the police. Ma'am, you just called the police on yourself because you're the one assaulting the children, <laughs> right? Much. She's screaming at them this whole time. And the officer is basically like, what are you guys doing? And he's like, I'm just playing magic, man. <laughs> like, And the officer just chuckled and walked away. And he's like, leave these kids alone. While, <laughs> and while he's walking away, she's screaming at them to arrest these children. Oh, like, my. I just thought that was kind of interesting. It was. I just can't imagine being that far into it, like that indoctrinated into, you know what I mean? This is what fascinates me about the human brain, because to some of us, it seems so outlandish, but to others, it's it doesn't take very much for our brains to switch off that critical thinking. Right. I think we've seen a lot of that play out in history. Yeah, like We're no, living through sure. a lot of shenanigans right now. It's just... Times is tough and not everybody, not everybody wants to have their eyes open to the other things too. Right. You know, it's another choice. Some people bury their head in the sand, literally and figuratively. <laughs> and on that note, yeah, we're going to skedaddle. That's a wrap for us. Thank you guys so much for hanging out. We're incredibly grateful for your continued support. Like, honestly, I'm really going through something right now and this podcast is basically what's keeping me hanging on so i really appreciate all of you guys 
coming to hang out with us each week. We love it. Um, just make sure you're following us on social media, the podcast specifically on Facebook and Instagram. We are at Crime and Spirits Pod on TikTok. We're at Crime and Spirits Podcast. This is where you can find ingredient lists, recipes, fun or weird or interesting videos, <laughs> dumb memes. We teach you how to make the drink every week. We tell you what our cases are going to be, et cetera, et cetera. If you'd like to follow us personally, you can find us on Instagram. I am at Suze, not Susan. And I'm at Brie underscore, not the cheese. If you're into what we're doing over here, pretty pleased with sugar on top. Go leave us a rating and or review. It really, really helps us out. It really makes our day. And it goes a long way in just kind of helping us get out there a little bit more. As we all know, if you you are more likely to go check something out if other people said it was good. Right. So show we us appreciate some love. it. Yeah. Oh, also, if you would like to recommend a case or cocktail for us to check out, you can email us over at crimeandspiritspodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you're interested in becoming a monthly supporter of our podcast, there is a link for that in the show notes. Feel free to smash that link. All right, guys. As is tradition, at the end of every episode of Crime and Spirits, we tell a corny joke well i tell a corny I joke like, Sue has no me. idea what the joke <laughs> is and it's corny and it's stupid and makes us laugh and it's just a way to kind of shake off the heebie-jeebies of the gross stuff we talk about mm-hmm. just kind of as a way to close out the show so what's a potato's favorite form of transportation what the gravy train <laughs> yes potatoes <laughs> are the best i love it since thanksgiving was this past week i just oh, figured yeah. it was appropriate and you know lots of mashed potatoes going all around i love mashed potatoes <laughs> it potatoes in general I mean, yes. fantastic anyways now that we shared our love of potatoes with you <laughs> i hope you guys are having some beverages with us but i hope that you're doing so responsibly make sure that you're staying inside you're not getting behind the wheel of a car order some doordash drink a glass of water take a deep breath have a great day and we'll see you next time bye Bye.